I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Sarah Kincaid. And I'm Greg Warren. And these are the stories we're working on for the 11 o'clock news. Your kids playing innocently with their plastic toys. But can those toys make them sick? Find out at 11. Also, your toothbrush. You use it every day, but can the bacteria in your toothbrush give you tooth leprosy? Or periodontal black plague? Maybe. You won't know unless you tune in. Another story we're working on. Your cookware. You use it to make dinner for your family. But if the circumstances are just right, could it kill you? Ow! Stand still. Hey, cut it out! Stand still. Ow! It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Hold that thought until 11 o'clock. And another thing. Babies. They are adorable. But if one of them was injected with an alien virus from the planet Xanthar... Could it grow to over 200 feet tall and spit acid like one of those wacky willy water bug sprinkler toys all over the city? None of us will know until the clock strikes 11 o'clock. It is a complete mystery until that moment. More questions we'll answer at 11. Can you get cancer from sleeping? Can an expired tangelo crawl up your nose and eat your brains? And are pencils alive? And lastly, newscasters. Are they really journalists or just well-coiffed, trained news monkeys who will read anything off a teleprompter, regardless of how inane or inaccurate the content? Is this actually the news at all? Maybe it's just a bunch of people playing make-believe for your entertainment. Maybe it's... It's... a great show for you tonight. We have Oregon Book Award nominee in our midst tonight. Author Emily Chenoweth is here, and she will read an essay for you, which is going to be lovely. And for all of you information junkies out there, we have the man, the myth, the inventor of the wiki, Ward Cunningham, is here with us tonight. 
Very exciting. And our musical guest is the punk rocker turned troubadour, Rocky Votolato. So it's a great show tonight. Uh, but first, you have to meet the extraordinary members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath. We've got Val Andrum with us tonight. The beautiful Pat Janowski, our siren of sound. And as usual, Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, he's going to sit in our audience in the course of just a single hour. The amount of time it took Louisa May Alcott to come up with another word for plucky. <laughs> Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses what he's learned over the course of the show. So welcome, Scott, and you'd best get writing. We can't do any of it without our amazing house band. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. <laughs> Thanks, boys. So as I mentioned earlier, we have Ward Cunningham on the show tonight, and he is the inventor of the wiki. The concept he created is used as the engine for what's probably now the world's most pervasive user-created information site, Wikipedia. We've all heard of Wikipedia. We've all gone to Wikipedia. Um, and it's actually, it's not easy to get a Wikipedia page if you want to. Um, you can write a Wikipedia page for yourself if you want, but uh, if you don't have cross-referenced, credible, well-established sources to prove your facts, your page, or at the very least, the unsubstantiated information will be deleted by the steadfast and sometimes ornery Wikipedia editors. Uh, who are essentially just other users, uh, very, very active and somewhat persnickety other users. Now, this information, combined with listening to some of my friends complain about the inaccuracy of people's profiles on dating sites, gave me an idea. <laughs> so what if you created a dating wiki where all the information listed would have to be substantiated in some way by credible sources? Right? So if Lonely Dude 9000 claims to be sensitive, I would like a link to a mobile upload of a surreptitiously shot photo of him tearing up during Eat, Pray, Love to prove it. <laughs> Although, if he did tear up during that movie, delete. <laughs> because he clearly has a vagina. <laughs> that line's not going on the air. Um, <laughs> I took a pause, Jim, though. It's editable. Uh, if he claims to drive a BMW, I would like the Datapedia editors to be able to cross-reference the DMV database to change the entry to reflect his registration of a 1974 gremlin. <laughs> and if he claims to be a generally happy person, I would like a link to a signed, notarized, registered letter from a competent mental health professional stating that he has never gone on a crying jag because Ryan Reynolds was cast as the Green Lantern and it's like Warner Brothers just killed his childhood. <laughs> Hypothetically. Not that I know anyone who did that. Yesterday. And if you, could, if you could integrate the fact that you have to be wiki-worthy, like on Wikipedia, like, there's currently no prerequisites for dating sites, except for the whole, like, being straight prerequisite on eHarmony and having 12 cats on crazycatladymatch.com, <laughs> which I'm totes on. <laughs> so look me up. <laughs> Desperate 4,000? 
that's me. Um, no, if, like having to meet some sort of standard would make us all ask as we're taking on a particularly daunting task, is what I'm doing wiki worthy? Am I wiki worthy? Is my cat? Is this sweater? Is my lunch wiki worthy? If I'm actually going to be held accountable, I better step up my game, right? I mean, and if I need a signed notarized letter from a qualified mental health professional saying that I am not nuts, actually, Datapedia is a horrible idea. <laughs> I take it all back. Uh, if we all had to prove our claims at the outset of a relationship, we would all die alone. And what's fun about that? So I, I won't put you in the Datapedia idea, actually, but we will talk more later about the wiki with Mr. Ward Cunningham. But now... You need to meet our first musical guest tonight. He was born in rural Texas and raised in the Pacific Northwest. He started his career playing post-punk hardcore, and now he's just as comfortable with an acoustic guitar. His latest record on Barsook is True Devotion. Please welcome Rocky Votolato. Yeah. I wrote this first song here um, after my son taught me what to do if you don't want aliens to read your mind. <laughs> song's called Tinfoil Hats. He reminded me that the only way to keep aliens from reading your mind is to wear a tinfoil hat, friend, and wear it all the time. Life keeps on changing Tell it to stay still but it won't listen I just want you near me like you are now for good Transistor tape recorder Tell me about everything that I lost I know you got it all stored somewhere At least I'm keeping my fingers crossed Life keeps on changing Tell it to stay still but it won't listen I just want you near me like you are now For good Keep it for good Stand. There's a light that's stronger Shining out of your eyes I see it It won't be long now Life keeps on changing Tell it to stay still But it won't listen I just want you near me Like you are now For good Life keeps on changing Tell it to stay still But it won't listen I just want you near me like you are now For good Keep it for Rocky Votolato. 
Welcome to the show, Rocky. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, your song brings up a, a question for me. A lot of people, when they make films, uh, they, they say that their work changes a lot when they have a kid because they want to make work that their kid can see. Um, did, your, did your music change when you had a kid? Yeah, I feel like it did. I, I mean, I, I feel like just having a family really informed a lot of what I was doing at the time. And, you know, you start to take different things into consideration for sure when you're, when you're writing. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to be writing about something that's too embarrassing. Right. <laughs> Later. <laughs> right. Well, plus you get the excellent ideas. Yeah. From the kids. Yeah, well, that's the good thing. Yeah. I don't have to work as hard to write songs. So. Right. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> well, I was looking at your tour schedule that just ended. You yeah. were on tour for six weeks. I counted um, six days sort of off and on um, out of that six weeks that you had off. When you have a schedule like that, how do you continue creating music? Huh. Well, I would say a lot of drugs, but I have kids, so I'm not going to say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, it's just, it's pretty intense. I mean, I, I was just back, well, I was out for six weeks, and uh, I did my last show in Bellingham last night, and then uh, drove home after the show to Seattle to sleep. So um, I meditate. Yeah. <laughs> that helps me. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's tough. You just got to get a, an hour of sleep in whenever you can and, and just uh, keep making it happen. So. You try out new music on the road on those audiences? I do. You know, on my days off in the hotel on this tour, I was writing. Because so, I'm, I'm actually going into the studio this week to, mm -hmm. uh, for a month. So I just got back from that six-week tour, and I'm... I've got one day off, two days of pre-production, and then I'm in the studio for a month. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I know some writers who try out their work in front of audiences, and it actually changes the work. They sort of use that feedback. That definitely helps, yeah. I, I tried a lot of the songs out that I'm going to be uh, putting on my new record um, on this tour, and uh, it definitely helped me weed out some of the ones that sucked. So, so it's, <laughs> how do you know that, though? What are you sensing, what do you get from the audience or not get? I don't know if I get it even from the audience. It's more just like going through my normal thing and feeling out with the songs that I like to play, and I get that yeah. internal voice that says, okay, this one is, is really good, or, man, this is, this is really crappy. Yeah. Don't, don't play that. <laughs> Why did you write that? Why? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are, you're working on a record now, because your, your last record was uh, February, right? Yeah, it came out year. last year. So your Barsuk Records. Mm -hmm. So do you have any idea when people might be able to look for this one? Uh, well, I'm really hoping to get it out by September. Lord right. willing, we'll see what happens. So wish well, me luck. We'll hold you to that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we're going to see you later on in the show. Yep. You're going to play be, one more song. I'll be back. So. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us. Thanks, Rocky everybody. Vodolato, everybody. Music on tonight's Livewire Radio is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Miss Spelt. She's healthy, a good alternative to wheat, and more organic than that woven hemp NPR tote bag you're sporting. <laughs> Thanks to Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. So I say to the guy, I say, hey, anytime a woman's been gestating longer than nine months, they call me in. I don't know what it is about me, but babies just want to be born around me. Yeah. 
I'm starved. Hey, what time's the reservation? We're meeting Nicole and Chris at 7.30. Look, there's something we need to talk about. Sure. Want to talk about it in the car? No. It's no big deal. It's just, well... <laughs> what is it? When we're at dinner tonight and when Chris asks you what you do... Oh, boy. Really? This? Again? Honey, please don't get defensive. You think I'm going to embarrass you? I don't, honey. Really, I don't. It's just I am proud of what I do, Cheryl. I know you are, and I am proud of what you do. No, no, you're not. You're embarrassed. Mark... You can't even say what I do. Of course I can. You're a midwife. Uh Uh-huh. And proud of it. You can get too descriptive. It's just that people don't want to hear about the perfect angle to hold a scalpel for an episiotomy. 17 degrees. Or about how much fluid escapes the birth canal during a labor. 3.17 liters. It makes them uncomfortable, Mark. I don't do that, Cheryl. It's not like I introduce myself and say, hey, you know what a speculum does? It spreads open. Yes, you do. You said that when you met my boss. Well, excuse me for having a job that I have a passion for. Please don't overreact. And Cheryl, 3.17 liters. I mean, that's totally interesting. <laughs> Do you know that that's like two and a half super big gulps? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Cheryl, I could have been anything I wanted, anything at all, and I chose this. I know. I could have been an astronaut. Well. Well, what? You're afraid of height, speed, fire, flying, and dying alone in space. I would have adapted. Okay. Look, I have a love of, it, of adventure. Being a midwife gives me that. When I wade in, elbow deep inside a mother, I feel like I'm touching the beyond. I'm discovering a new world and pulling it into this one. It's like, it's like putting a fur coat on God. Gross. <laughs> Look, how many jobs give you the opportunity to help women to have a healthy pregnancy and natural birth experience? Obstetric nurse, OBGYN, fertility specialist, doula... Okay, okay, all right, whatever. These women come to the happy Yoni midwifery, and they're searching for someone like me to guide them through their pregnancy. Okay, but why have you started wearing those moo-moos? Oh, they are not moo-moos. These are ceremonial robes. They're traditional. Traditional what? You look like a 50-year-old lesbian. All right, these have been worn for centuries. Some believe a stubborn child can be summoned from the womb by merely wearing these vestments. What? All right, remember your friend Gail? She didn't even know she was pregnant. And when I approached her, a small child tumbled out of her... Well, tumbled out of her. These vestments are full of power. Mark... All right, what do you want me to do, Cheryl? I want you to just dial back the excitement a little bit, just until Chris and Nicole are comfortable with you. I don't know. Would you try for me? I guess. Thanks, babe. It's better than my last job. That's true. I'm so glad you're not doing that anymore. (laughs) I know. Writing for a radio variety show. What was I thinking? So embarrassing. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we believe that variety is the spice of life. But we also enjoy paprika, which has been used both as a spice and a mask to cover up horrific hors d'oeuvre mistakes since 1970. <laughs> Coming up, author Emily Chenoweth, wiki inventor Ward Cunningham, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. 
You can find our next guest's work in Tin House, Book Forum, People, and many other literary hotspots. She used to be the fiction editor of Publishers Weekly, and now she has her own piece of fiction. Her first novel, Hello Goodbye, has just been nominated for, the, for this year's Oregon Book Award. Here to read a brand new essay, please welcome Emily Chenoweth to Livewire. <laughs> I moved to Iowa on the day Jerry Garcia died. It was mid-August and the sun had been merciless since 8 a.m. when I'd packed everything I owned into my Toyota Tercel and pointed myself west across the tedium of Ohio, the flat green nullity of Indiana. Sugar magnolia blossoms blooming, sang the radio. I knew about three dead songs and that was one of them. The only reason I'd even heard of the dead by high school was because my neighbor wore a fake concert t-shirt with the band's name spelled G-R-E-A-T, full dead. It's cool that way, he assured me, because I don't have to worry about copyright infringement. In college, my friend Heather and I, and a girl whose name was Meredith, but who went by death, went to see the dead at Madison Square Garden. The arena smelled like patchouli and armpits, and the noodling guitars bored me. Heather and I spent the entire time working up our courage to ask someone to let us smoke their pot. <laughs> the only other time I'd gone to see them, I'm not even sure I left the parking lot. I remember doing whippets and meeting a girl with a domesticated wolf in her van, and after that, nothing. <laughs> At first, I didn't believe Jerry was gone. Not today, on this, the first day, as they say, of the rest of my life. Perhaps the DJs had bad information, Perhaps every radio station was playing Touch of Grey, coincidentally. By 2 p.m., my right leg was numb below the knee, and I was still five hours from Iowa, the place of my parents' birth. My mom and dad had grown up in opposite corners of the Hawkeye State, and they met each other at Catholic College in Dubuque. Their experience of the 60s was Simon and Garfunkel and drinking Vouvray and getting in trouble for PDA at a football game. Those Iowa roots of theirs were partly to blame for why I was now driving through what felt like one single, never-ending cornfield, its monotony broken only by silos, graying barns, and billboards advertising the world's largest truck stop. I thought I'd learn important things about their past, my mother's in particular since, four years before, she had died of a brain tumor. Oh, how I missed her every single day. On the day Jerry Garcia died, I was 23 years old, and it was 110 degrees, and my Tercel didn't have air conditioning. Somewhere west of Chicago, there was a caller on the radio. I don't think Jerry's gone, the boy said. I think he's just unwilling to manifest again physically, so we've got to open up to let him come through us from the other side. This isn't goodbye, you know? <laughs> I scoffed as I drove. That boy was too young or too stoned to understand that life is made up of goodbyes. Goodbye to your adolescence, goodbye to your mother, goodbye to the life you'd grown used to living. Here I was, driving to West Branch, Iowa, a place I'd never been, because I'd told myself I'd go anywhere as long as I could be a teacher, and now I was proving it. A boarding school had offered me a job sight unseen, and I had accepted in the same ignorance. After five years in and around Philadelphia and New York, I'd come to think of myself as an East Coaster, an urbanite. I loved crowded sidewalks. I loved public transportation. I liked my sketchy West Philly neighborhood, 
where panhandlers would actually knock on my door to ask for money. <laughs> I liked telling the story about how my Tercel kept getting stolen. But now, every mile took me deeper into the rural Midwest until I was turning down the narrow gravel road that led to the school. The campus was across the street from an old prairie cemetery. Six buildings of diverse architectural styles united only in their ugliness encircled a large lawn of overgrown grass. It was evening and still hot, and there was no one to meet me. The air smelled like corn and dust. It doesn't matter what the school looks like, I'd said in my phone interview. All that matters is what happens in the classroom. I'd had no idea how wrong I was, and realizing that, I began to cry. <laughs> then, in the distance, I saw a figure moving. Wiping my eyes, I walked towards it. It was a teenage boy, the son of the school's headmaster. He had, had mowed a minute square of lawn, and he was now standing back to survey it. I'm supposed to live here now, I said. Can you tell me where I need to go? He led me to a low-slung white duplex, half of which I and two other young female teachers were to inhabit. The sun was setting behind it in fireworks of red and orange. It was dark inside, and a strange yeasty smell came from the kitchen. I couldn't find a light switch, but I could see that the living room had no furniture, no curtains, no lamps. Home sweet home, he said, and went back to not mowing. My bedroom, lit by a sickly fluorescent overhead, had linoleum floors, ripped wallpaper on a single wall, a bare, narrow bed, cobwebs. Outside the window, bugs, giant country bugs, flung themselves toward the light with a sound like gravel hitting the screen. <laughs> I must find a city, I thought, a place with traffic and people and restaurants and pavement. I knew that Iowa City was nearby, so I got back onto I-80 heading west again, as if the school, my future, had been only a pit stop. There were 15 more miles of corn before I saw anything resembling a town. I took the wrong exit, though, and got lost in a maze of chain restaurants and furniture stores. When I went into a gas station to ask for directions, I saw, on the front page of the Iowa City Press Citizen, a color picture of two young deadheads weeping and holding each other. The girl had long blonde dreads, and the boy was wearing corduroy pants with ducks embroidered on them. <laughs> Ripple was playing on the radio. Listening to the dead, a friend once told me, is like listening to the sound of 40 burritos melting in the sun. <laughs> By the time I got to Iowa City, it was 9 o'clock and fully dark. I walked down the pedestrian mall, past a few bars, a couple of gift shops, a tobacco emporium. There was a busker on the corner and a knot of teenagers by a fountain. Because I'd lived in a bad neighborhood, it had been almost a year since I'd been outside alone at night, and I regarded everyone with suspicion. I had on my city face the expression that said I was fierce, unassailable, certain of where I was going. This was false on so many levels. I stopped at a payphone and left tearful messages for my boyfriend, my father, and everyone else whose number I could remember. As I stepped out of the booth and headed back toward my car, I fo heard footsteps behind me. Muggers, I thought. I sped up. The footsteps sped up. I could feel the adrenaline in my legs, the sweat beating on my forehead. Whoever was behind me couldn't see my stern, confident face. Whoever was behind me didn't know that I was not some obliging Midwesterner happy to hand over her purse. I was from the city. I was not someone to mess with. I was almost jogging, but I couldn't shake my pursuer. So at the corner, I stopped and turned around, my hands in fists, ready to fight. There behind me was a boy, a lovely, clean-faced boy with eyes that were red from crying. 
Please, he said, can you spare some change? A girl came up beside him and threaded her fingers through his. Oh my God, I whispered, what for? I was crying again, out of fear, out of relief. We want to go to Jerry's funeral, the boy said. The girl looked at me hopefully. She only wanted $5 or so. Wouldn't I give it to her? Her hair was in blonde dreads. The boy had ducks on his pants. I know you, I said, meaning I saw you in the newspaper. The girl smiled. We know you too, she said, meaning I don't know what. She, she reached out as if to pull me into an embrace. He's in a better place, so you don't need to cry. I wiped my tears. I even heard myself laugh. Jerry, I said. Papa Bear, she said. I gave her $20 and told her that it was okay. I didn't need a hug. Then I started walking again, alone, unfollowed, in the summer night, toward my new life. That was author Emily Chenoweth. Her book is Hello, Goodbye. And you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you're in the Portland area, come celebrate with us on April 15th. It's our special 7th anniversary and 150th episode at the Portland Art Museum with guest director Todd Haynes of HBO's Mildred Pierce, author Anne Lamott, and musical guests Holcomb Waller and Sophie Lux. You can find more information on our website at livewireradio.org. Thanks for listening. This is the BBC World Service. I'm Felicity Chambers. A recent study in the British Journal of Sexual Medicine reported that up to 70% of women suffering from migraines found relief from sexual intercourse. So despite the often used excuse given to men, not tonight, I have a headache, the numbers suggest that women should perhaps give in to men's amorous advances in order to alleviate their symptoms. In response to the study, the Women's Health Wikipedia page has changed to indicate the following facts. A bully shag and bopping the crumpet restores luster to skin and hair. To maintain bone density, it is suggested you nightly bang and badger the cupboards of Sir Darcy Street. <laughs> Panic attacks can be lessened with a smidge of the old Bournemouth legover. Insomnia is usually cured by a little merry-go-round business with the romp and dolly. <laughs> Menstrual cramping can be eased by delivering the old boff and polish to the palace guard. <laughs> the most effective way to burn calories and release the relaxing chemical oxycotin is a spot of chim-chim-chimmery cheroo whilst clanging the bells of St. Peter's. Female orgasms may be sought by a visit to Parliament and having a chat with the Prime Minister, whereupon he will inform you that in Britain there is no such thing as the female orgasm. <laughs> and upon refreshing the page, it appears these facts have all been scrubbed by the Wikipedia editors, except for the last one, which I can back up anecdotally. This is the BBC World Service.
So just last week, the world celebrated the 16th anniversary of the Wiki. As you can imagine, the parties were insane. What up with the nerds? Um, <laughs> but according to his Wikipedia page, in March of 1995, Ward Cunningham created WikiWikiWeb. It was the first user-editable website to make it easier for programmers to exchange ideas with one another. Five years later, Jimmy Wales used a clone of WikiWikiWeb's engine to create what we now know as Wikipedia. Since then, Ward Cunningham has moved on to other projects but has continued to work with Wikipedia. Uh, he still has his software consultancy, Cunningham & Cunningham, and he's currently doing some really exciting work on collaborative web video with a San Francisco-based firm, Citizen Global. Please welcome Ward Cunningham to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, Ward. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here, too. Yeah. It's really exciting, especially so close to the anniversary. Well, yeah. Of course, that happens every year. What did you do to celebrate? <laughs> I think I went to bed early. You know, it's been a lot of work down that... Uh... Yeah, before they dropped the ball. Yeah, well, yeah. right. <laughs> Actually, I, I have... Uh, uh, for, for all of this, I have lots of uh, volunteers to thank for uh, really doing all the work on Wiki. You right. know, I wrote a you know, few hundred lines of... Pearl code and and uh, people filled in the rest with uh, with their own invention. It's one of the things that's cool about it is that uh, as a programmer, I chose not to instruct people in what to do. I let them figure out what to do, and they were smarter than me. Excellent. That's always good to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Well, you know, it turns out when you hook all the computers in the world together, you get connected to a lot of really smart people. Yeah, <laughs> through the tubes, through the series yeah, of tubes. Yeah, that's right. And, and it took about five years before the, uh, the uh, obnoxious people discovered it and started <laughs> filling it up with... Uh... Now, yeah, well... now, the, now, the good news is that the, 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 the really helpful people outnumber the obnoxious people by just enough... That we can keep a good, a busy wiki uh, uh, fairly uh, uh, orderly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I sort of, I, def I attempted to define a wiki, but what, what for you is the, the solid definition of a wiki? Well, you know, the word gets used for a lot of things now, and I'm kind of okay with that because, uh, because in the dictionary it has my name on it, you know, so the more things that are called wiki, the better. <laughs> but f for me, I think that the idea that... Uh, uh, strangers could come together and get to know each other well enough to trust each other to make something together. This, this idea that you're collaborating, that you're, you're, you're uh, letting somebody else finish your own work mm -hmm. is, is something that, uh, you know, is not all that easy to do in person and to be able to do it, uh, you know, through text on a computer is, is, is really pretty exceptional. And, well, and Wiki is so simple Mm -hmm. that you know it can't be the computer program. It really is the people. Yeah. Well, it feels like this collaborative process that you're talking about is somewhat antithetical to, to what the software world was like at the time that you created. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the people felt that if we were going to write a computer program, we have to figure out what people are going to do, and then we wrote the computer program to make them do it. Uh-huh. And I just said, well, I'm going to let... People do whatever they need to do, and I'll just trust that the... Of course, I also thought it would only last six months, you know. Mm -hmm. but, 
but I, I, I thought, well, let's see if this works. And, and the internet was new at the time, and, and people figured that if they came to a site, they had to kind of figure out what they were supposed to do and do it. Now we know you're just supposed to shop. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think that you more than just about anybody uh, can, can probably speak to this, just this idea of, of how we're now getting our information. And what do you think are the benefits and the pitfalls of this democratization of information? Oh, I'm, I'm excited by it, and, and it's because uh, not... Like, if you want to build a spaceship, it helps to have a lot of scientists. But if, if you just want to live your life, I don't think scientists have a lot of advice. You know, but... Uh, kind of understanding how many different ways you could lead your life, you know, you want to hear about other people and how they've led their life. For example, I was reading uh, kind of uh, at the same time I was reading about how uh, folk tales, you know, told by the hearth, you know, by traveling storytellers were, were very true, you know, because if they weren't true, people wouldn't, uh, w wouldn't uh, embrace that guy the next time he came to town. Uh, but when the printing press was created, those stories, well... Little Red Riding Hood had been eaten in the story, mm -hmm. in every version of it, in every language, until they, uh, they printed the fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales, and they said, well, that's too harsh. You know, let's have, a, let's have someone come and save her. And, and the whole meaning of the story was ruined by that because it was, it was a cautionary tale, and it stopped being cautionary. It says, somebody will come save you no matter what. And, and so that's where uh, the concentration of power in the printing press or in writing a controlling uh, computer program or whatever, that concentration of power actually makes things wrong. You know, that, 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 that people are better at telling what's right. But, but in your story about, about the changing of the, of the Little Red Riding Hood story, I mean, if someone uploaded that story to a Wikipedia page, couldn't someone edit it to, to end whatever way they wanted it to end? Yeah, we should, we should check, uh, you know. <laughs> I want somebody out there to get working on that right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's because it is sort of telling a collaborative story about what's important. It, it is, and it's what's important, and it turns out that, you know, knowing what the, the next episode of Lost is turns out to be pretty important. It but, does to a lot of but, people. But, uh, and Livewire, for that matter. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I want that Livewire page to be uh, tuned up real nice here when I check tonight. <laughs> Uh, it may be there. Yeah. We, yeah, we don't know. You, you would, you've taught, you, you've said that storytelling for you was a big part of creating the wiki. Who's, if, if you hadn't have created the wiki, whose stories do you think aren't getting told? Oh, that's a good question. You know, what, the one, I created it because computer programmers were being advised how to write computer programs in a way that to me didn't make sense. So I, my, I had been focusing you know, for two decades on computer programming at the, at the time that I, I wrote that. And the advice in the textbooks and the, you know, in the trade press and that was just foolish. You know, it, it wasn't the way to make a good computer program, but, but the people who wrote them didn't write computer programs, they wrote books. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to get the people who really had the experience of debugging a complicated computer program to talk about what that felt like. Now feeling isn't something that you really associate with computer programmers, but... It's not. But it turns out that what you're really doing is you're facing, you know, a puzzle, and there comes a point where you're, where you don't know that you can do it. You know, you're not done, and maybe it's not going well, and being able to have the confidence to move forward and wait for the discovery that you need to make that program work 
is something that you actually need a lot of support. There's a lot of things you need to do to make that right. And what, what uh, the advice that was going out was, well, whatever you do, don't get into that situation. Plan before you ever try writing a program because sometimes things go wrong. The, the textbook authors were saying, well, here's how to not program. And, and we said, well, that's crazy. So I'll get people who are programming successfully to talk about how it worked for them. And, and so this kind of elite community Elite, uh, I don't mean elite, I mean, but, but the people who were privileged to be on the internet in 1995 tended yeah. to be computer programmers. Well, I know, I read that you actually kind of ran into some issues with people who really felt like, because you were essentially giving away information for free yes. on these boards, and you were sharing, and this was the beginning of open source code, and, and, and there were a lot of people who were essentially saying, you're not going to have any quality control on this because the only way that people are going to feel responsible for something is if they own it. Oh, oh so absolutely. in what ways have you seen that oh, this, this, proved this was, out or not proved this out? This was a story that was uh, told about computer programming, you know, that if we can't blame somebody if there's a mistake, then we'll never get quality. But it turns out what you need is you need people to help each other writing. And, and this was kind of built into Wiki in a way where... Uh, completing each other's sentences, and I had people on there who believed that you had to hold people responsible for their code who were making that argument in the wiki, completing each other's sentences, arguing that you couldn't do that. And then all of a sudden it occurred to them, well, this is crazy. <laughs> we're doing it right we're now. We're doing it, right. Right, so right. we're doing can. it. And, and so in that sense, the wiki sort of completed the argument that but we what, needed to write programs a different way. Okay, but how do these people s survive? I mean, if these people are doing this work for free, what's, what is the benefit for them in the long run? You know, it's, uh, in any creative art, the, 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 the satisfaction of creating will keep you going. Now, uh, computer programming is valuable in its own right that you can, you can write programs by day and still have some energy to write programs in the evening, it's just in the evening you get to do them your way and they'll probably be successful, whereas the programs you write by day are for some silly little thing that somebody wants to pay for. Right. Yeah, I, I think similar, musicians well, tell, me, to, yeah. tell me the same thing. They say, exactly. you know, you got your, 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 your for money band and you got your for art band and, and, yeah. and they, they're, they're different kind of bands. So it's know. similar in this world. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, it, well, what people didn't believe is that computer programming is creative, but you take something where there's nothing, and then you make something there, yeah. and it's something that people can experience in love or hate, yeah. you know, but that's, that's creativity, and, and, and it's, it's easy to confuse that with some kind of mechanical skill, like an assembly right. line operator, but it's just not, and, and what I did is I wanted to preserve that for computer programmers, and it turns out that we you know, with the, with the encyclopedia, we've basically preserved that kind of right to, to be able to express ourselves for, for everybody, and in fact, in every language. It's fantastic. There are, uh, on Wikipedia, you know, what, three, four hundred encyclopedias in, in languages that just wouldn't have an encyclopedia if it weren't for Wikipedia. Yeah. And that's, that gives those people a voice. You know, I was saving computer programmers, but... Uh, you know, the encyclopedia is, is saved a, a creative activity 
where you could be published instantly. Yeah. You know, for uh, uh, for anybody who wants anywhere in the world. Yeah, it's access. Yes. It's access Absolutely. for people. Right. You know, I was always confused when uh, teachers would say, uh, uh, whatever you do, don't trust Wikipedia because it's not written by experts. And these were the same teachers who were trying to teach the kids to write. What, the, what are they writing for if you can't, if you can't be trusted? You know, well, the thing right, is, you, you can't ha- trust yourself. Right, right. You, have to, you have to rise to that. Uh, you, know, you realize that, yeah, you want to be trusted. Yeah. yeah be yeah. trustworthy. It's, it's part of the experience of writing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk br- briefly before you go just about the work that you're currently doing with Citizen Global and Wikimedia on collaborative, editable online video, because I think this idea is fascinating. You, you know, uh, in 1995, the, the idea that we hooked all these computers together and we could uh, form a community from anywhere in the world was, was really exciting, and, and I simplified things by making, it, making my system just text. But I feel the same excitement as uh, video cameras are in everyone's pocket now, you know, that, that, that there's, we've crossed a boundary in, in accessibility. And the quality of these things is fantastic. Yeah. So uh, I wish I said, I, I could tell you what the answer is, but I know that the opportunity is there. And I'm just really pleased to be working with Citizen Global on this to uh, uh, turn this into uh, uh, hopefully something that is just as profound as Wiki, you know, uh, but with video. Yeah, with yeah. video, and, uh, and hopefully we won't have to wait 16 years to see it work either. Well, yeah, hopefully there won't be the same comments that are on YouTube. Yeah. Because uh, those are a little mean, frankly. Well, you know, the, uh, one reason I called it Wiki is I didn't want to call it electronic mail or electronic news or anything like that because it was unlike any other system that we knew. And I think that when we really make video work, you know, from a human-to-human, com- com- you know, community thing that it won't be like any any form of video that we ever knew before. I think we'll yeah. make something that just simply have never existed and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's a really exciting idea. Uh, well, we're looking forward to seeing what you do next. Okay, um, and me we too. we really appreciate your joining us. I'm, I'm waiting to see what you do next. Excellent. Right, right. I'm going to get up yeah. in just a second. <laughs> War Cunningham, everybody. That was the inventor of the wiki, Ward Cunningham, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org.
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Rocky Votolato. And smoke bombs lying dead on the sidewalk. Black marks on the concrete now, they were beautiful last night. It's a picture of our life. Can we make this what it was? Everything is right, everything's wrong. Sparklers only burn for so long. Tightrope walking, balancing on a thin telephone line. The wind blows and you wanna call it off. The cars below keep going by. And now you're getting tired. Everything is right, everything's wrong Sparklers only burn for so long I'm a pendulum that swings Trapped in the disappearing Setting sun, the moonlight at dawn A book of way to hold on so watch the light dance in the dark until it's gone sparklers only So this is a song from an album called Makers, and this song's called White Daisy Passing.
Passing white daisies taking turns Close the door, walk into the street Catching raindrops on your tongue And for a minute it all stops But it won't last, man It's a passing moment gone Climb underground for her good And all I want to do is turn around I'm going down to sleep on the bottom of the ocean Cause I couldn't let go Water at the setting sun Passing white daisies Taking turns all those evenings on the back deck of our first apartment They meant everything but the wind just carried them off And we can't go back now, it's a passing moment gone Please, slow it down there's a secret magic past world You only notice when you're looking back at it All I want to do is turn around I'm going down to sleep on the bottom of the ocean Cause I couldn't let go of the water at the setting sun Cause I couldn't let go The passing moment gone Thank you very much. Rocky Vodolato. And now, as promised, the man who's been toiling away this entire hour while we played, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight it's time for me to be pregnant. I just love the idea. As a man, no one expects me to have a baby. And I love the idea of that challenge. And I love that it will be a complete surprise to everyone, especially my wife. I'm just not sure how I'm going to pull this off. I'm not worrying about getting a baby inside me because I know in my heart Jerry Garcia is trying to manifest physically within my man womb. But why did it have to be Jerry Garcia? I smell constantly of patchouli and armpits, and I keep asking people if I could smoke their pot. I can't believe I'll be the first. I think about guys like Richard Branson and Tony Robbins, who always seem to be conquering ultimate stuff that no one has conquered yet. 
I can't believe they haven't each given birth to at least a dozen Jerry Garcii by now. <laughs> I've already set up the Wikipedia page that I'm the first man to have a baby. No, that guy that showed up on Oprah doesn't count. He was a woman first. He had a uterus. That helps. But just to get past the Wikipedia edi editors, I've got a clincher. I'm going to be the first man to give birth in space. I'm thinking if I was an astronaut, the weightlessness might help somehow. I've got it figured out. I'll wear a tinfoil hat and play the harmonica to coax the baby from my man uterus, wherever that is. And I'll have a little tinfoil hat for the baby, too, when he or she comes out. Then being so close to Jupiter, where the mean aliens live in trailer parks, it won't affect our minds. See, I'm not crazy because I have a plan. Crazy people don't prepare. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm thinking it's going to have to be a C-section, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. Could having a baby kill me, even in space with my tinfoil hat and my astronaut midwife? I thought it was just kind of impossible, not something dangerous. In fact, saying you're going to do something impossible, like have a man baby, kind of takes the pressure off. No one expects that you're really going to pull it off. They just want to see if you're stupid enough to try it. <laughs> but maybe since there's no track record for men, no one knows how male pregnancies are supposed to go. So maybe I could just say I'm pregnant. <laughs> maybe I could say for a man it takes an entire life. Yeah. <laughs> I've already got that baby bump. That would be great, because then I, would ha I wouldn't have to cut down on my nightly cupcakes and 3.5 liters of beer. <laughs> this is just between us, okay? Don't anyone tell Richard Branson. Thank you. <laughs> Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our guests tonight, Emily Chenoweth, Ward Cunningham, and Rocky Votolato. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. LimeWire is created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and Scott Poole, and performers Tyler Hughes and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Our guest writer this week is Jason Rouse. Our guest performer was Val Landrum. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Stage management by Matt King. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying, I will just sit here quietly now until the end of the theme song. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed 
and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.